Yeah, it's 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 difficult. I mean, I, I I'd be lying if I said otherwise. It's you know, I had five and a half feet of water in my house. I was displaced for a year with a newborn, and uh, you know, mm-hmm. just um, you know, it's very traumatic. Um, but I will say, that, you know, thanks to the federal government and thanks to uh, you know insurance companies stepping up and doing what they were supposed to do, a lot of us have been able to move on. Welcome to the Defense Never Rests with Morgan and Akins. Your monthly dose of uncommon sense about all things legal and some that are not. Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome to this episode of the Defense Never Rest. I'm your host, Megan. I'm, I'm joined again today by Lindsay. Hi, Lindsay. Hey, Megan. How's so it going? The, good. So the first podcast wasn't traumatizing enough, so you could decide to come back for another. <laughs> right. Yes, I did survive and I'm back. <laughs> Happy to have you and your beautiful color-coded shelves behind you. I just Thank envy you. <laughs> oh, I just love it. And so are those like novels or like? Uh, yeah, mostly. I am an avid, avid reader. So I read every day, um, aside from what I obviously do for work, but I read every day. And these are the ones that over the years I've either retained, there's a couple on there that I haven't read, but these are mostly ones that I've read and decided that they were worth uh, keeping the book afterwards. I have an entire separate shelf of books that I am to be writing um, and that I'm actively reading, which right now I'm on The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue. Mm-hmm. So I just started it. So I can't tell you whether or not it's going to be good yet. I just finished The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo. Oh, I did love that. Some people hated it. I don't know. I loved it. Uh, I have, I have a mixed bag on it. When I first finished it, I was like, oh yeah, this is really good. But then the more I thought about it, the more I'm like, I would say it was average. I would recommend reading it because I think it has good lessons in it and interesting uh, storyline. But I think there was a couple things that I would have liked to have seen in addition to that. But see, I don't read for lessons. I just read for stories and like, I want it to be easy and light and just Mm. like, I want to escape for a little while. I don't even care if it's well-written. Yeah. (laughs) I have dual purpose. I, t- I try and do, so I was literature, uh, I studied literature in college, an English lit major. And so I try and read for both the fun content, late reading, and that's stuff that I usually get through Kindle Unlimited, like on my Kindle. And then I have the actual novels that I buy and read. And that's usually the stuff that I try and like find more you know, in depth, that's going to actually make me think or, you know, not just be the lighthearted story with the happy ever after, but I definitely read those too, but usually I have one of each going at the same time. So yeah, I have like a very like low, low level of taste in, in books, but that's okay. <laughs> I'm okay with it. Hey, as long as it brings you joy and makes you happy, like I'm like, read whatever you want, you know? Yeah. So. <laughs> um, yeah, well, I, I'll, do, I, I'll go on a tangent, so I'll just stop myself there. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> so today we have on Frank McLaughlin, and he is the reinsurance claim manager at TOA Reinsurance Company of America. And I talked to Frank a few weeks ago. You know, we had an awesome conversation. And, you know, I, one of the things I was talking about is like reinsurance is such a foreign concept to a lot of us. Like I just, it's hard to understand. Um, so I wanted to get him on to talk about that, but also he was very passionate about, um, you know, retaining good talent and bringing talent in. Um, so, you know, he's here to talk a little bit about that and who knows what else will, will come up. Um, so with that, let's bring him in. Good morning, Frank. Welcome to the Defense Never Rest. How are you today? Good morning, Megan. Uh, I'm doing well today and yourself. Great. And I'm so happy to have you, one, because I believe you are also in New Jersey and very rarely do I have anyone on this podcast that's also like it it is kind of close in proximity to where I am. Ah, (laughs) okay. (laughs) But you're up north, I think, right? Yes, I'm up uh, uh, on the Jersey Shore. Okay. Well, and, and I mean, I'm, I try to not talk about the weather, but I can't help it since we've been, had rain for like five days straight. And now at least the sun is shining and it's a beautiful, wonderful day outside. So it's lovely here as well. Probably not quite as warm. I, I take it you guys weren't too badly impacted. No, I mean, I, I, a lot of rain. I put the, yeah, I put down grass seed. I figured it was a good time. <laughs> <laughs> that was smart <laughs> to get that fall, fall grass growing, <laughs> but Anyway, um, we are not here to talk about the weather and grass, um, but, you know, if everyone who listens to this podcast knows that I, whenever my, I get new guests on, I like to 
get an idea of, you know, how they got to where they are, because all our, our paths are so different. Um, and you are an attorney by trade. Uh, you went to law school, but how did you end up going to law school? Like, was it something that you had planned to do? Did you have parents who were lawyers or were you like some of us that we just went to law school because we didn't know how else we'd find a job? Yeah, so, <laughs> you know, I was, I was waiting tables after college and a gentleman came in and I would wait on tables for him every day. And he said, and one day he said, uh, Frank, you're too obsequious not to be intelligent. And uh, do you want to work at my company? And his company turned out to be American Reinsurance. And so I went and interviewed for the job and, and got the job. And I was there about three years. And I realized that in order for me to really have the experience necessary for the position, I either had to you know, spend 20 years in the industry um, and then I'd be ready to go back into reinsurance or, or I'd be better off uh, going to law school and putting some tools in my toolbox. Um, so, and I had some good mentors there that helped me make that decision. And I ended up going to law school and really, um, you know, enjoyed that. Um, so I was a little older. I, um, I got out of law school at 28, um, practiced for a few years, and then uh, went back into insurance where I'd start from once I'd sprung. You know, I, I had a similar thing. I went to law school a little after working for a little bit and I, I think it's a definitely a different experience because you, you approach it a little with a little more seriousness than I felt some of my classmates um, had. Although they're all still great attorneys and they also did great in law school. I just approached it in a much more from a more serious position. Did you feel the same way? A little bit. Um, you know, I, I'd I'd stayed busy with academics, you know, while I was working, you know, I was getting my CPCU and ARM and that kind of stuff. So I was I was and then I, uh, through my friends, I'd briefed the whole first year of contracts. Um, so that, that I really didn't have to worry about. I had the whole book that we were using and I'd had all the, uh, you know, briefed the whole thing with, uh, you know, uh, as, as we used to do in first year law school. Mm -hmm. So I was able to, you know, concentrate on the courses I had less familiarity with. So it was kind of, you know, I went in with a purpose. Uh, I wasn't a great, I wasn't the strong student in law school that I was in undergrad, but, um, you know, it was a more talented uh, pool of, uh, you know, competition, I guess, as well. Yeah, it it's is very opposite. Kind of, mm. Yeah, it kind of throws you for a loop a little bit. Like, I think everyone goes in being like, well, I did great in undergrad, so I'm going to do great here. And then <laughs> you take your first exam, you're like, I didn't do great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, it, didn't, it didn't work the same way. <laughs> great took a lot of effort. You know, a, a, a 3-0 didn't take too much effort. So yeah, I settled for I, the 3-0 and I was just gonna say, I did the opposite of you guys. I went straight through, I did my undergrad and I went straight into law school. So I didn't have that break um, where I got to work in between, but it was really interesting listening to one of my classmates when I was there who were, most of them were older than me. I was probably one of the youngest people in my class also because my birthday was young. I started law school on my 22nd birthday. So wow. Oh, wow. I was like a baby, a true, true baby in law school. But I mean, it's, it's so interesting to, was the interesting then and interesting now to hear your experiences, having had the opportunity to work in between and gain that experience prior to going. Yeah. I felt a lot, a lot of people that I, my experience, a lot of people went straight through, like it was more of like a continuation of the, the college fun, at least at, at the beginning. Um, and then maybe reality kicked in at some point, but yeah, it did. Definitely <laughs> <laughs> well it's got to kick in at some point I guess <laughs> uh, so so then Frank you didn't when you graduated you went right did you go right back you were working so did you go right back to uh working in-house at, at the insurance company or did you were in private practice for a little while you know, I, was, I was in private practice at a firm called Kroll and Tract, which is a 50 attorney firm on, in Midtown Manhattan and it's gone through a couple of iterations since uh, but we did mostly work for London market clients, uh, handling uh, a lot of construction, New York construction, as well as we were a consultant on uh, indemnification and additional insurance issues for the London market across the country. And how was your experience um, being like a new attorney, like being a New York attorney, like working in downtown Manhattan, like, like you have, I have this idea in my head of like what it's like, <laughs> and it's probably exactly the same as like what it was for any of us in Philly, but it seems just, a lot more thrilling and exciting. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, well, you know, my my first office was probably the nicest office I ever had in my in my life. It was on the, you know, fifth story uh, overlooking um, Madison Avenue or Fifth a actually overlooking Fifth Avenue, mm -hmm. and it was just this amazing, you know, view of the of people coming and going. And you know, we all used to wear suits all the time there. I'd have my bow ties on. I was just, <laughs> uh, you know, zipping in and out of uh, you know, but but it was a you know, you had all this autonomy. I was given a, you know, I had my own secretary back in the day, even, you know, even though I knew how to type, um, <laughs> but I would, I would stay, you know, t routinely all through the night um, or, you know, work till, you know, to get a motion out. I was sort of, the, because I'd been on law review, I was sort of designated as the guy who did a lot of the appellate, you know, uh, first rights, uh, you know, the, the right throughs of the, uh, the first time around. And then, you know, the summary judge motions, which are very big in New York, uh, mm -hmm. as they are elsewhere, but if, you know, it's a, quite the process and you work on those and spend 30, 40 hours on them. And then you, you know, in order to get it out, uh, in, in the morning to get it bound and off to the, to the courts, depending on what kind of motion it was, it had to be done. So mm -hmm. I would just stay there and smoke a cigar in the office and have my port and, uh, and, you know, and, and relax in my boxer shorts, you know, working away. I'd be the last guy in the office at two in the morning, you know? It's a very uh, Mad Men picture you just painted for me. Yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was kind of fun. I mean, I, you know, I didn't live too far away, but you know, when it, was, it was just a different, it seemed like it was a different time back then. It's, just, it's almost hard to remember it going back to the, you know, early 90s. Yeah. I mean, I, I, this was even before law school, but I remember the job that I worked in between uh, college and law school um, the, with the big boss came into town. She lived in Chicago and she would come to DC and she would always smoke in the office. And thinking about that now, I'm like, that is the most like bizarre thing. <laughs> like I can't even, like, I can't even imagine what would happen. Like if someone did that now, you know, but it was like, oh yeah, she's here you know, just expect it to be smoky. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, later when I went over, to, uh, I did some audits over in Europe, especially in Paris and every, you know, there's an ashtray in front of everybody. Um, it, it's just an odd, it's, it's an odd uh, thing. We hit, when I was at Mendy's Mound as a summer associate, they, we, they were still smoking there because one of their big clients was uh, uh, whoever makes Marlboro or whatever. Yeah. Um, and so they, you know, they, they, their client basically compelled them to allow smoking in the office. And that went away shortly thereafter, but um, it, it was always funny. I mean, right from my first days in the business, you know, there were people in the office, you would be able to smoke in your office, but not at your cubicle or whatever, but as long as you had a door, it was okay. And then you had to get a smoke eater. And then eventually they told you to, leave, you know, go outside, take your cancer with you. Yeah. It's kind of <laughs> like when they let you smoke on planes. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> The, always the scariest thing for me was how many years later those uh, you could still see where they glued those um, ashtrays together, you know, just, and, you know, they I'm like, how old is this plane? I have there hasn't been smoking in 30 yeah. years. <laughs> but then like the funny part is that like you could smoke on a plane, but they would like have the smoking section and just have like a curtain as if like <laughs> that was going to like stop anything from flowing through the cabin. Right. And I think just, it's like extra alarming to think about it now after like after the last you know two and a half years of like when we were going on at the planes everyone's worried about COVID and now you're like oh but people used to just smoke on them no problem yeah crazy <laughs> it's crazy how things change um, now you had mentioned you did uh, audits overseas was that for for your law firm or for one of the companies that you worked for after? Well, I've worked for a number of companies. Um, the, I think my first uh, trips overseas were when I was with, with Riverstone, uh, which is a claim handling entity up uh, handling mostly asbestos pollution, health hazards and construction defect in, uh, up in um, New Hampshire. And so I was up there and we had, clients, uh, the Fairfax companies that had uh, French uh, subsidiaries, and they were handling books of uh, asbestos and pollution health hazard claims uh, there. And with, so they had English claim files, and they needed me to do, do uh, that for them. 
Um, so we'd go over and review those and spend a few weeks looking at files and assessing the, uh, the, the financial impact of those, of those claims to, to the organization. And you know, we'd write a report in that whole, uh, the, the whole Megillah. Um, later, when I served as the chief claim officer to Sucrazia Generali um, SPA, uh, the, their US branch office, um, we would routinely go over to help out our clients in Italy France, uh, London, and we just jump in and we, I remember one time we went over to do an audit of um, white finger claims. Yeah, the white finger is what you get if you're on uh, using a uh, automated drill too long. If you're doing, um, uh, it's generally associated with minors. And so it was, you know, it was black lung, there was some black lung disease. It was white finger, which is a repetitive stress disorder. And there was also tinnitus claims from whatever reason. So and that was that was interesting. We were auditing at the plaintiff shop there, and we were trying to put values on these claims. And I had no idea what I was doing, but you know, just sort of, I, I, you know, I, they put me in charge, and so I just went and led the team and tried to figure it out as we went. So, how was the the change of working environment? Because at the time you were you were still in New York, right? So, how was the change of working environment from? the U.S. to, you know, when you're over there immersed in, you know, with those claims there? Well, it's, I mean, it, these are all, you know, very developed countries and, you know, in, in, in London certainly has an even older, you know, insurance tradition than we do here in the U.S. Um, they, t- they tend to be, have long work days, uh, take more breaks. Um, they sort of enjoy life a little more. The lunches are a little better. Um, and you're not going to Salad Express or whatever. <laughs> yeah. It, it, you know, you're sitting down for a proper meal. Um, I mean, better expense accounts. Uh, they just sort of expect you to enjoy yourself and have a glass of wine when you're at lunch and or two. And, you know, and then you go back and you work late. So it, it's a um, it's a trade off, but it's it, it was a tremendously professional environment. Um, and I, I learned a lot from my European colleagues um, over time. But I also yeah. did consulting for them on, uh, for the London market on construction defect uh, claims in the US. And you know, they were writing a lot of that. You know, London continues to be he- heavily active in that, in yeah. that market. Um, so I feel like I like got ahead of myself, but you started, sure. you, you started mentioning Paris and I was like, oh man, we got some interesting stuff going on here. <laughs> <laughs> but so let's back up though to, to your time, you know, at the law firm in New York, you're working, you said you're working on like construction labor claims and, you know, I mean, the labor law market in New York is still just this giant complex thing um, that it's its own little monster or large monster, I should say. Um, but how did you end up transitioning out of the private practice back to um, working for an insurance company? Yeah, I, you know, I just, you know, it was getting to a point in my career where I could see what I was good at and what I was doing. You know, what I wasn't great at was, you know, oral arguments and that kind of thing. Um, you know, the think on your feet type of stuff. What I tended to gravitate towards was um, writing. You know, I was a very strong writer. But I could see what happened to great writers is they get kind of locked up in a room and you get a new assignment. You'd be, you know, told, you know, this needs to be done on Friday and your whole day would be get, you know, a couple of days would get wrecked as you got it done. And then, you know, on, on Friday you get thanks and, uh, you know, you get a, a new assignment uh, in addition to whatever your own files are. But, you know, I just didn't really like that uh, lifestyle too much. Uh, it was a lot of the work and not, you know, not as much of the glory. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also knew that I, I didn't have a, you know, so if I didn't have a traditional niche as a litigator, you know, could I bring clients in? I, I knew that I was not a salesman at heart and I really didn't want to be. I could see the guys who were doing well early in their careers, trying to bring in, bring in clients and leveraging, you know, family relations and all perfectly appropriate. I just didn't want to do that. So I was kind of running out of ways for me to, you know, have a, a long and, and, and productive career in insurance or in, sorry, in law. I just couldn't see my way through it in New York. And then I, I got an opportunity, I got more money and a better, better or a good option to go to a, an insurance company um, and sort of leverage my years of reinsurance experience and claims experience into a traditional claims job as, as well as my 
experience litigating uh, a fairly wide variety of bodily injury and property damage claims in New York. Oh, I was just going to say, and I, I don't know if you had already told Megan this um, uh, in the past or whatnot. Now, when you went back into the insurance industry, was it directly back to the same place that you had started before no. you did, went to law school? No, it's a good question. Uh, I went to a place called the Home Insurance Company, um, or it was actually known as Risk Enterprise Management at that point, and then it, uh, it transmogrified into the Home Insurance Company and liquidation at some point. Um, so it was a it was a good role. I had a good role. I I got a tremendous amount of experience because they didn't have enough people. You know, this was sort of a dying ship. So they put me in charge of all their TPA administered business. Um, I got a, it was pretty much a free reign uh, to run my cases I saw fit. Um, they just didn't have enough you know layers uh, to establish so, you know a lot of the. Um, bureaucracy that other insurance companies have. So we just kind of flew by the seat of our pants. I was handling 500 claims. I was having a great time. Um, <laughs> and, you know, but it was, I was on a, I was on a ship that didn't look like it had long to sail. And I was right. I mean, just the company was in distress. And so I ultimately I, I moved to a couple of different jobs and started and started uh, managing people uh, rather than actual claims. Uh, and I found that I had a flair and an ability for managing the, the, the process of a claim department, you know, r- running the individuals, uh, getting to know them, getting to know how to get the best work out of them, keeping them engaged and giving them this, the technical support they need to succeed at their, in their roles. Hmm. So what, you know, what do you feel in that role? Like what are, what are you looking for from your team at, in order to like get the best product and work out of those individuals? Like, are there certain like personality traits or anything about individuals that you're looking for? Yeah. You know, it's, it's funny as we, I came into this, this industry by accident, as many people do. Um, But at the time I came in, there were uh, highly developed training modules at a lot of insurance companies at Liberty in particular. I know, you know, some of the big, um, uh, auto companies have detailed training programs that guide goes to the world. Um, but that really started to go away. A lot of, a lot of companies became smaller and the in-house training went away. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and then the pr- profession just started getting a lot older and we just stopped having, uh, you know, people didn't really want to work at insurance. It sounds sort of 1950s, even though it's a huge part of our, our workforce, yeah. uh, in our economy, but it, nobody wanted to work there. And I was there by accident. I got my training at Crawford and company. They arranged to have me go down there and spend a month or two down there and, and get, get me some basic training. And then law school was obviously helpful, but that, you know, I learned on the job as I went, as I went forward from there. Now there's a company called the Jacobson group and they're specialized in retaining and uh, just Big staffing organization. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, they do a study on on insurance pretty much quarterly. And their most recent one indicated that 68% of companies uh, in in the PNC market plan to add staff within the next 12 months. Only 5% plan on shrinking. And the major areas they're going to add are technology, underwriting, and claims. Those are the core functions of of most insurance companies. But if you know, where are you going to get these people from? If you're hiring new people, if you're just poaching off the market, it's, it's going to be very expensive, right? Yeah. Because you're, yeah. you know, you're always going to have to pay more than somebody's worth in order to get them away from their, you know, the, the, their place of current employment. So as I became, a, as I went through my career as a manager, I was always faced with this problem is that we did, just didn't have people coming in at an affordable uh, pay scale to do a, you know, a, a entry-level claim job. We just weren't getting them. And we certainly weren't getting them from colleges. Um, and we, we, you know, we just weren't get, seeing the kind of talent we wanted. So there's a, there's a couple of things. Is you, sometimes you need to identify people from your uh, paraprofessional staff that have potential. These people might be functioning as um, 
in either an administrative capacity, a billing clerk, say, or you know, somebody got in, you just find somebody who seems to have a little, a little bit more on the ball than the next person in, in a similar role and see if you can engage them and put them on a, but you have to give them training. So that, that really comes from the manager. So you can enroll them in CLM, CPCU, uh, Associate in Claims, SCLA, which is the Senior Claim Law Associate Program. Uh, you can do internal programs. But the key thing is that you need to give them time during their day in order to study. So I would generally allocate two hours a day. I just want you studying. Uh, you know, whatever, whether it's your associate in claims, you're just starting out or whether you're, you know, getting a more advanced uh, claim degree, such as the SCLA um, or CPCU, maybe. I want you to see you at your desk two hours a day, you know, for the first couple of years of your career, just learning. Mm-hmm. And then we'll give you, and then, and then w- what I would do is once or twice a week, I would go in and spend an hour with them. I'd go over the answers to the questions. I'd bounce questions. I'd, they could talk to me about claim issues. I'd see who's, you know, we'd set up role plays for negotiations and, and how we would handle certain situations. How would you handle a, a telephone inquiry about coverage? And so we would just, you know, we, we had to, because we didn't have people on staff and we didn't have, we couldn't hire somebody who'd already been trained by a, a company that had a, a, tra- a proper training program. We had to sort of develop our own by the seat of our pants. And I've done that at about four or five institutions where I've managed to train up people who, who lack college degrees for the most part, uh, certainly lack insurance experience. Um, and it's a matter of trying to identify people who are gonna fit into a, into a claims uh, setting. Uh, you have a lot of police officers leaving the profession, corrections officers leaving the profession, uh, uh, people departing the military. These people are all bringing some of the skill sets that we really look for. They're detail oriented, they're organized, uh, they're essentially combative. Um, you know, they don't back down easily. Uh, they're sort of alpha personalities, many of them. Uh, strong negotiation skills are what you're looking for. I look for people with a background in construction because they know how things work. Right. So they can, look, yeah. they can look at a, an accident where the, and see the dynamics of the accident better than even an attorney might in terms of just saying, well, it's clear they didn't have that. They weren't tied off at this place. They should have been tied off here. If they'd been doing this properly, maybe the accident wouldn't happen. Or if the company had provided some, you know, a different safety rig, the accident might not have happened. Um, I just think they people who have actually been out in the world doing things and solving practical problems um, are, are a valuable resource if you're looking to expand your um, inventory of claims people, because yeah. you're just not getting an, enough of them coming. There's a relatively limited number of insurance related programs. And most of those are, you know, geared towards the, uh, the more money parts of the business, you know, the underwriting, the profit centers, they're not necessarily or, oriented, uh, towards the back end of the house, which is, which is the claim function. Yeah. I think that uh, other experience that, you know, we develop in our lives is so important, kind of even what we had talked about earlier, how you guys had that experience before law school, you know, putting law school in perspective for you. And then now people coming into this claims industry and the insurance industry and being able to draw on their personal experiences in order to really get into their role that, that you're looking at them for, you know? Yeah. I mean, and it's, and it's where you suffer is with the, Generation Z, right? Uh, according to a Talo survey that uh, came out last year, only 37% of Gen, Gen Z students would consider a career in insurance, but 76% are in, interested in careers in technology. So how do we sort of make this a, a, a job that has some technological appeal? Well, that was going to be my, my question to you when you said that. I was like, so what's your pitch to Gen Z then to, to bring them in, you know? Well, I think we can embrace the technology. I mean, I think on the claims side, certainly on the property side, that's a very tech-driven uh, world. Um, First-party claims, you're out there with your drones, uh, you're doing uh, mapping, you know, using com- uh, computerized uh, you know, devices, you've got uh, pricing, uh, you, you're using pricing systems, you know, you're, you're basically carrying a laptop around with you. So this, there is some technological appeal there. We also have you know, growing role for the claim person in risk avoidance. Um, so these risk management, there are risk management positions. Those are highly technical. Um, and people are going to be using a lot of different uh, software, like the, uh, the use of cameras in 
commercial vehicles, facing mm -hmm. outwards, facing inwards, uh, various ways of establishing metrics of proper performance in terms of brake time and really being able to document how accidents happen. Now, people need to know how to use that technology. People know how to need how to how to engage it. So I think that you can get people into the industry, but it's not one of the high paying jobs as, as, as you know, relative to a career in technology. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's always, you know, that's always going to be a problem. But we've always had a problem, I think, getting people excited about insurance. It's not an exciting field. Most people, a lot of yeah. people like it when they get in there and have, you know, perfectly adequate and satisfying careers. It's just hard to get excited about it. I mean, it's a little more excited to get interested about law. But, you know, one of the big areas you see is people departing the practice of law to join a claims organization. That's a very easy yeah. uh, step because you have all the tools at that point. The problem is you just tend to be higher priced than the, you know, the, the average claim handler. Mm -hmm. And it skews the people with advanced degrees want to work on the most complex stuff, right? Right. Mm -hmm. So they're, they're, they're engaged in, um, if, they, if you have to have them doing, you know, a, a small auto rear end hit, that person's you know not going to be as engaged uh, in that. So it's all, always getting work to the right level. And you can have people that are, you train on auto first party. I do see a lot of attorneys coming in. I think that that's a good thing in many respects, but it, it does also appear to shut down people's growth potential if they come in not as an attorney. And that's, you sort of have to have, uh, you know, different types of experience, and create career paths for people so they, they they can look and see that they can have realistically have a career like Bill's or Jane's and, and it goes to, you know, to a, a certain level. Yeah. Um, and, and it's a realistic and rational uh, expectation for them if they work, if they develop the, you know, the tools they need in terms of whether it's a managerial skill or a complex claim handling skill or a, a special or, or a speciality and whether it's in cat claims or in um, uh, trucking claims. I mean, those are areas that are driving the, the insurance industry right now. And if you're willing to get in on those, I think you could have a satisfying career. It's almost like you, a way is to even approach it at like the high school level. Uh, yeah. like, and, you know, cause there's some people who might not want to go to college, but don't necessarily know what trade or what they might want to do. And the insurance industry might seem so foreign and as you said like it's not it's not flashy on the outside that people think you know and almost if you were to come in at the high school level and like uh, show people that this could be a career that you might not necessarily need you know a college degree to to accomplish yeah I mean high schoolers are probably also I mean like you said I mean it's not super flashy or whatnot but like how many high schoolers are even thinking about any kind of insurance you know like at least people as you get older you think oh yeah I have to pay my car insurance and my life insurance and my homeowners insurance and my renters whatever it may be like you're more exposed to it whereas you're in high school you're under kind of like the parental umbrella and like maybe you know that's your fair. parent or guardian or <laughs> like having you like kind of like chip in to like pay for whatever your your you know, your car insurance maybe or maybe or whatnot, but you just aren't having the exposure to it to even think about having a career like that. I, I think if you're a, a company that has a big enough footprint in a, in a particular community, you can do that effectively. Uh, you know, can I do it ad hoc? You know, you know, I'll probably do it a parent teacher or, or at a parent, um, what's your dad, bring your dad to work day. Yeah. Um, or bring your dad to school day and talk about his job. And, you know, it, I can watch all those kids slowly go to sleep as I talk so I mean I, I get it um, but it's um, I, I think I think it's difficult to engage young people in this profession um, without either making it a more exciting uh, more dynamic vision of a job or by making it a, a, pay, you know, a better paying job mm -hmm. they go where the money is uh, we're going to see a huge amount of loss of talent over the next three to 10 years as, as this mm -hmm. generation of claim professionals ages out. And we just don't have the, we don't have enough young people coming into the, into the pipeline right now. Um, 
and while well, these are all good ideas, I don't I don't think we'll solve it today. I'm just oh. I told you some no. of those that I think that it's you know we've been able to in my career we've been able to get some people into the into claims who weren't or wouldn't ordinarily be in there, get them trained up, and get them into productive roles, and where they've where they've seen tremendous success. Because if you look at I, I got some information on how much uh, what the average claim uh, salary is. So it, salaries for beginning adjusters now is about between thirty eight and forty k, forty thousand dollars. With moderate experience, they can expect to make sixty thousand in three to five years. That seems like it's a pretty good job for somebody right out of uh, you know out of a two year degree or out of or, yeah. or out of college. Um, and then with complex claims and social inflation are driving the litigation cycle. Um, there are a lot more claim uh, claim handlers out there making six figures and more, yeah. much more. And yeah. then then they go into, then you end up in management, and that's where the you know the real success is, I guess. Yeah. And you know, this isn't the first time though I've heard um, someone talk about like hiring or, or pulling up within um, and, and having a lot of success at at their organization with it. Like I, I had a woman on that she was talking about that, you know, oh like my like right hand gal used to be like a line cook you know and I just you know she just was a super hard worker and I you know said hey let's bring her over to risk management and you know she's like she started off low and then you know but she worked really hard and she was really passionate about the company and she's like she's one of like my best you know teammates um so I think like the whole idea of you know kind of looking within and you know promoting people within that are, are loyal to the company and like teaching them what they need to know to transition into a new role um, is, is a great way to like build like talent. It's just getting, a, also just getting people in the door that um, is the other challenge. Yeah. I mean, they, it's funny. They talk about what the, what the, this generation wants is benefits. And, yeah, you know, I, I'm always driven by, uh, medical and vacation it's always you know whatever I, I want more vacation if i can possibly have it and i want you know a better medical plan and you know better 401ks and bonuses and just the money stuff but you know this generation wants more flexible hours uh more vacation time they want work from home options um you know some people want unlimited vacation and what some one way to get people in i think is to give student loan assistance Mm. I think that's an excellent way. You know, you start paying somebody's debt off over, you know, over five yeah. years, or ten, you know, you've, you, then you've got an employee for that amount of time. Um, the gym membership or the, or the fitness facility, I think that's huge. Um, this is much more fit generation than yeah. uh, ever before in a lot not of places. Not as many smokers. <laughs> not as many smokers, at least, at least not cigarettes. Um, yeah. But, yeah. You know, if, if you have enough space, you should consider uh, a, a decent gym in, in your facility and if you don't you, you can either help with um, gym memberships i think young people are into that um and what, what about and then what the other one is pet insurance oh yeah yeah <laughs> apparently that's something that's huge people want pet insurance yes they want it and they don't want to spend a lot of money on it but like yeah they, but how about now that the you know the the climate has changed though that i i feel like people want more flexible schedules too like it, i i the idea of having to go into an office every day now, I think it puts, especially the younger generation is like, that's a big turnoff, I, I think. Yeah. And I, I, there's relatively few companies that are not um, being somewhat flexible on work from home arrangements. Um, you have to be competitive. And if, if everybody's sort of going to two days a week or three days a week in the office and the rest at home, I think you have to, uh, you know, be prepared to accommodate that. You can't be, if you're old fashioned, you're just going to be left behind. Um, and then there's, I mean, I had people working for me that were entirely hybrid in my last role. Um, I had, you know, a person in Chicago, a person in Atlanta, a person in Texas, people in Pasadena. And then we just, we decided to sell our offices. You know, they were kind of winding yeah. down that shop, but they sold the offices and just everybody worked from home. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I will say the insurance industry, I think has always been a little bit of ahead of the curve with the remote working. I mean, I, I, I just remember like typically anyone I would talk to at adjuster was not in a, an office. They were in their home office. 
Um, so I feel like they were definitely ahead of the game with that, but it's definitely something I think the younger generation is very hot on. Yeah, well, I think you see that a lot at uh, TPAs. So right now, TPAs control their costs in part, uh, in my opinion, by allowing uh, flexible work from home arrangements where you, you'd never go into the office and you never have to travel. And it suits people who have certain uh, dynamics going on in their own life, whether it's uh, care for an elder parent, care for a young child, um, you know, just a general supervision of an older, older child, uh, availability to be there to, for school pickups and drop-offs. It's, mm -hmm. These are just hugely beneficial. Um, and there's so many ways to monitor uh, workflow performance that it, sh it shouldn't really be a problem for uh, the organization to track productivity if it, if it needs to. But look, people are plenty unproductive in an office. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, you could you could be sitting there. It doesn't mean you're working. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Those signs on the doors that you see that are like, "Please don't talk to me. I am easily distracted." You know, <laughs> like, when you're sitting in your in your office and everybody's there to like have a conversation with. But do you think um, that there is a role for technology in filling some of the gaps? um in getting uh, like human people in to do it or like you know improving technology in a certain way that might fill some of the gaps or make their job make the actual people's jobs easier before you can build the workforce up yeah i think that a lot of claims um that especially on the the lower end of um, the claim value you can run those through the injuries through algorithms that you would show you come up with a a, a range of, of claim values for a particular injury so if you had a you know a fractured humerus on your non-dominant arm you know what's that worth um and then if there's other things you know how much lost time is there and and uh you know what were the total amount of medicals incurred and you you, you could in theory have basically machines that try to value it. And there's a lot of products out there that try to do that. They get marketed mm -hmm. to me all the time. I don't find most of them very effective, but I think the future's definitely there. And that's gonna eliminate a lot of, I think the, the, the lower positions in claims. Uh, but unless there's dramatic changes to how we do litigated claims in terms of the plaintiff's bar, I mean, the plaintiff's bar is, is not gonna settle for uh, something that was crunched crunched out of a out of a machine it's gonna right. it's, it's, you know it's gonna want it it's gonna make its arguments as to the massive value of a case and you're gonna have to have people with 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 the experience you know talk about the with the mediator about the liability issues about the you know the potential defenses um about the you know whether these you know the, the medicals are all on liens and therefore should be discounted as opposed to you know liens, medicals that have actually been paid out of pocket so you know there's there i think it's as long as you have difficult issues that require uh complex thinking you know the, the senior claim professionals will certainly be around it's just whether we have enough of them and they're adequately seasoned by the time the the generation walks out the door I guess that's a double-edged sword then if you're having more technology heavy uh, experience on the, you know, low, lower end of claims values, then those people aren't getting that experience to become the senior claims people that you want them to be down the road. Yes. Um, that's very true. And <laughs> there's really no way around that, but you can get people, I think people can, I think the difficulty is for a claim manager to say, I want to have a trainee. And this is what I want to do. I want to hire three trainees. I figure one will stay uh, long enough to, you know, to be good. I want to hire three. I want to put them through a little training program that I'm going to design and, you know, using the various tools we talked about earlier, and mm -hmm. then just basically run those people through a six month course where they're getting paid um, to, to just learn how the system operates to, to you know, to get the basics um of the job you know, get them right out of and then and then you may have to pay them a little more than you pay somebody else you, know, you got to be competitive with what other, what other training programs are out there for a b student you know from a you know middle of the road college yeah. um 
Go ahead. I was just going to say, I know I've participated from the other side in those uh, kinds of training programs for claims where, you know, I've played the role of the plaintiff's attorney and said, you know, <laughs> tried to needle the claims representative. And there are people who don't, you know, they're the, the new, the new, the new claims people that aren't used to kind of dealing with the banter maybe yet of yeah. <laughs> that, that you get. So you put on your best uh, plaintiff's hat and pretend for a little bit, Sure, but, you know, it was, it was, I think it was a good experience for them. It was always a good experience for me, you know? And the bar has always been really good about, you know, helping support uh, player development and, you know, in the claim on claims teams. So mm -hmm. it's, they've been, they've been good about getting in there and providing learning tools. Um, but I think you just have to think about it. If you're if you're a claim manager, you, you have to start plan some succession planning, um, and you have to have these uh, career tracks that people you know pe not everybody wants to manage people. They want to be a senior technical person, um, and some people just are are natural you know natural leaders, and they should be managing people and processes and, and making yeah. for a better claim product overall. And not everyone should be a manager, you know, no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there's just some people that's just not, not their role. And it, like, we talk about it a lot at, you know, here too, like, you know, there's some people who, you know, are good at, you know, putting their head down and, you know, billing, working the, working the files, billing their hours. There's people who are, you know, excel at, you know, client development. There's people who work in between, like everyone has their strengths and you have to like, you know, figure out what those strengths are and play on them. I, I, I agree. One thing I want, wanted to talk about before we run out of time though is, and you and I have talked about it on the phone, is reinsurance. Because, ah. <laughs> because <laughs> it, it, while I get it, I don't get it. <laughs> and I, I just say this with, I, I had a friend that I worked with at, at an old law firm and he, he left to work for a reinsurance company. And I was like, what? you know, how did you even find that job? Like, do you even know what reinsurance is? It's like, I honestly Googled what is reinsurance before my first interview. <laughs> it's like, I had no idea. And he got the job. It was he had a great time there. But, you know, for, for those of us, you know, sitting here and those listening, um, can you give us like the one-on-one of what reinsurance is? We have an idea of like what, what your, you know, what your day looks like. Because your claim situation now is different from what it, it was you know, when you started in, in claims? Yes. Um, well, reinsurance is a risk sharing mechanism by which insurers uh, give reinsurers a portion of their premium in exchange for the reinsurers taking a portion of the loss. And typically reinsurers, uh, so if you were a primary insurance company and you wrote mostly million dollar policies, just keeping it simple. So for those, if, if you wrote mostly million dollar GL policies and auto policies, you might want to have protection above say $500,000. So you would buy, you know, treaty reinsurance that would uh, apply to all claims above $500,000. Now, obviously there's fewer claims above 500 than there are below. So there's less, you're, you're, share, you're keeping more of your premium since you're retaining the, the, the most dangerous part of the risk, which is the uh, higher frequency, lower severity claims. But on the, on the larger claims, those are, you know, the, the, that's being borne by the reinsurers. And they just, and that, that's what we know is treaty reinsurance. And now there's per risk reinsurance, which is called facultative reinsurance. And that's where you uh, buy, write a particular tower of insurance or a hundred million dollar policy for, um, you know, Amazon, and then you you would facultatively spread your risk by taking a certain person would take five percent or ten percent or fifteen percent of five million x two million or uh, twenty million x twenty five million, and you'd sort of that would get broken up various various ways that way, uh, but essentially it's about sharing the risk, and then in exchange for that you share the premium. And what the reinsurer claim person does is they want to make sure that these losses fall within the treaty conditions. Um, and those treaties are, are typically uh, drafted, the, the reinsurance contracts are drafted by attorneys, which might have been what your friend was doing over, over in that role. Um, and they're incredibly uh, detailed documents, often 100 pages long. And that's, the, that's because it applies to so many potentially multiple lines of business. Um, multiple insureds over long time periods. And it basically gives protection for that 
insurer to go out and write the business with the understanding that provided that it you know shares its premium doesn't write outside the lines you know there are exclusions in treaties so you might have a underground mining exclusion if you have an underground mining exclusion and you're all of a sudden you see that they're writing uh, mining risk uh, that's one you're something that may potentially not be covered under your contract and also maybe something you want to draw to the underwriter's attention as an undesirable risk given the you know the particular language within the treaty uh, and then they can you know then they'll go to the broker the, typically um, reinsurance contracts are brokered so there's large reinsurance brokerage houses um, Gallagher uh, and Guy Carpenter are big ones so the treaty comes first and then deciding the underwriting process comes next between all the different companies? Well, you would typically one insurance company would have a bunch of reinsurers. Right. Um, and so the, so if all, to, to, we'll take all states. So if all state wants to write a certain line of business, they want to make sure they're protected from their worst, from the losses that f fall outside their business modeling. You know, the, things sure. that they can account for uh, they would rather keep for themselves because that's, you know, they have the actuaries to do that. And the stuff that uh, represents the greatest risk for a potential downside uh, or geographical considerations, if they, you know, think that they are too heavily reinsured, too heavily insured in, say, Florida, South Florida, they might want to have some extra reinsurance on that simply because it's a high risk uh, market. Um, so for whatever reason, they're purchasing, you know, they want to write whatever they want to write, and they want to be able to change and add. Uh, they may want to be able to add a pharmaceutical uh, policy, and they might want to write uh, hang gliding or something. You know, there's certain little niches they might want to write through an MGA or an MGU. Um, but the the idea at the end of the day is they want to have the flexibility to write casualty business, however that's defined in their treaty, or property business, however it's defined in the treaty, as broadly as they wish. And they want to have the they want to have the protection. Uh, it's a business of utmost good faith. Uh, both sides are heavily reliant on on the accuracy of the information that's being fed. Um, so as a, as a reinsurance claim person, I'm constantly outgoing to meet with senior uh, claim folks at the underlying insurance companies. We're discussing their their protocols, their planning, what's their uh, how protected are they in the event of a catastrophe? Do they have a you know, cat plan? Do they have, um, and then we look at individual claims to see if they're being handled generally in a way that's consistent with uh, best, practice, best practices as we understand them, whether they're being, or if they're potentially exposing uh, the reinsurer to ECO and XPL, um, access to policy limits, judgments, and uh, potential bad faith, ECO. Yeah, so you, you answered my next question because I, I was going to ask how your role has shifted as a claim manager in reinsurance compared to when you were in liability claims. I mean, it, it's definitely not, or it doesn't seem like a claim by claim basis. Like it seems like a more of a management of or overseeing larger claims. Yes, um, there's both. Um, you know, if you're working on the property side, you're seeing, you, you might, just be starting to see the, uh, the the Hurricane Ian claim starting to come in. And so you want to make sure that you have that coded. Uh, so all the uh, claims come in under that CAC code so that in the event that we have reinsurance of our own, what we would call a retrocession, um, that we can, for, for catastrophes, that we can have everything coded properly and get it out the door. Um, you also... So you're you're looking at sort of the bigger picture some a lot more often. You're looking at you know a thousand claims or ten thousand claims as opposed to the individuals. You might just you might want to check a few of them to make sure that, you know the eyes are getting uh, dotted and the T's crossed. But you're not going to have an opportunity to look at all ten thousand claims that might come in on an individual catastrophe. Yeah. However, on a on a large uh, single loss, um, in my in one of my prior roles in reinsurance, I had the uh, uh, Costa de Concordia, the Concordia uh, uh, boat that went over, you know, with uh, lost many individuals and lots of property and this, you know, billion dollar claim. So you're looking at a lot of these larger individual claims and trying to assess from all of our insureds, what's this 
what's this loss gonna represent to us? So if you had the MGM shootings, for example, you might have 20 different insurers who have, uh, have that you reinsure that have policies that are exposed as a result of some role they had. You might be, they might have been insured the police department, they might have been insured the MGM, uh, insure the security teams, uh, insure the people who put on the, the show, uh, the, you know, the people who provided crowd control. I mean, there's just all of these people that are going to be a part of a billion dollar claim like that. And you have to, as a reinsurer, assess what's the risk to my organization uh, as, a, as a result of this, you know, one catastrophic loss event. Yeah. Mm. I, and I'm, I'm actually glad you brought up Hurricane Ian because you know, I, I've been hearing so much about the impact that is going to have uh, and like on the insurance industry. And what are, what are your thoughts uh, on it? Because I mean, to me, I, I mean, I, I just the looking at the loss from afar, I'm like, it is, I just can't even believe what I, I'm seeing. I mean, and, and you lived through Sandy, which was, you know, a terror, like it's similar to just similarly catastrophic. Yeah, well, my, my heart goes out to everyone who's suffered as a result of that. Um, you know, from a reinsurance standpoint, it's not, it's, it's, it's going to be bad in the sense that to the extent that you're heavily invested in risk in that part of the world, you're going to end up having to pay up. Um, and that could be potentially crippling to, to an insurance company or its reinsurers. Um, but on the flip side, rates are expected to go up by 50% uh, on, the, on the reinsurance side this year. So I've heard. Now, I've also heard that, you know, there's only about 5% of the uh, homeowners that are insured in Florida. That's not, that can't possibly be true. I'm sure it's a much higher number. Very low. Uh, mm. But, you know, if that's the case, it may not be as much of an insurance event as it is a taxpayer event because they're going to have, you know, as they do, as they did with Sandy, they're just going to have to, you know, they, they can't just let the whole state go under. Uh, you're going to get some big spending Republicans uh, <laughs> for a while now. Um, and I mean, for, and from your perspective, I mean, when you're I mean, because you, you live at the shore and you were in an area, I believe that Sandy directly affected. So you must like, it must hit you even closer because it's something that, you know, you lived through and had to go through. Yeah, it's, it's, it's difficult. I mean, I, I, I'd be lying if I said otherwise. It's, it's um, you know, I had five and a half feet of water in my house. I was displaced for a year with a newborn and, uh, you know, uh -huh. it's just, um, you know, it's very traumatic. Um, but I will say, that, you know, thanks to the federal government and thanks to, uh, you know, insurance companies stepping up and doing what they were supposed to do, um, you know, a lot of us have been able to move on, including myself. So, yeah, it's but just... it's 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 difficult the first few months just trying to get it. Oh, I tell you, it was interesting as a, when Sandy happened, I was at the shore and I had my cell phone all charged up and everything. My uh, I don't think I'd gone to a laptop at that point yet. Uh, but within a few, within a day, my phone was dead and I was unable to do that one thing that I was supposed to be doing, which is, you know, be there for people, for my insurance when they have a cat catastrophe. And I couldn't even oversee it from afar. So, uh, you know, I was just, I was out of work for two weeks and, you know, my clients who were, you know, major multinational companies that had huge flooding damage. I just had to rely on my team and our cat planning to, to make sure it worked out okay. And we did, we were able to, you know, fulfill our obligations and, and get out to see our clients. And we had a cat te team in place, a cat program. Uh, but it, you know, it wasn't easy. And it was a very frustrating thing for me to be, you know, I like to, I'm a, I'm a boots on the ground kind of guy, so. <laughs> yeah. Do you have any tips for either the, you know, the people who are experiencing this kind of catastrophe from Hurricane Ian, having gone through something yourself as to how to get themselves through that process? Yeah, well, I mean, I was very fortunate. I, I had assistance from, you know, big property people that were, uh, you know, through, through my work and they were able to help me out and get a team on, you know, fly a team in to help me and all this other stuff. But one thing I would say is, is that definitely people should think about using a public adjuster. 
uh, the advantage of a public adjuster is he represents you, not the insurance company, uh, and he gets a portion of of you know of whatever he gets you above what the insurance company offers. So he's heavily motivated to try and get you more money for your loss. Uh, for people who are completely dispossessed of their house and property, uh, that can be a very valuable person to have. Um, to the extent that you don't have cap limits. So if, if you have a $250,000 cap and you have a $500,000 house that's sitting in the ocean, you know, you're probably, you know, you probably should just take the 250 and, and uh, move on, uh, you know, depending on your, uh, your personal property claim. Um, but if you're adequately insured, it's important to get your, you know, the full benefit of the policy. Yeah. And then from the other side of it, what, what do you recommend for the people who are going to be handling these claims and, you know, the <laughs> influx and, you know, like for the, the insurance that. side of it? Yeah. Well, you know, just don't get burned out because it's, you know, you, you have to give, have to take a lot of breaks um, because you're, you're just hearing people at their wits end or just so disconsolate. It can, it can get you down. Yeah. And, you know, Fortunately, in my life, I've mostly been on the commercial side, so people don't get quite as agitated about their business as they do, you know, as they do about their uh, home and and their cars and you know, where they're going to live and where you're going to put them. And so, yeah. I, I think it's important to have your, you know, the people that you have on the front line uh, to have processes that work to make sure that you're able to refer somebody to a supervisor, and the supervisor can refer to a manager. Uh, basically keep the lines of communication open. Yeah. As a manager, I want to check in with my people and make, make sure they're not getting burned out. Uh, check in with them every couple, a couple of times a week and just see, see how they're doing. Um, because it's just really a matter of keeping up the esprit de corps within the, within the organization. And you have to remember, this is how you build your brand. You know, your brand is as XYZ insurance company is really put to the test when it comes to claims. And they mm -hmm. want to make sure that you have somebody out there so that means you have had to make your, your arrangements with uh, property cap people uh, well in advance so they can swing into action and get out there to the affected properties and cut checks where necessary, um, or that you can get a, make sure that you have the ability to get a check out there quickly. Yeah, yeah. I think that, that's great advice. Um, so we are, we are just about out of time, but I didn't want to let you go <laughs> without first asking you this. And I ask every, everyone a, a variation of this, this question, but you know, knowing what you know now throughout your career, what advice would you give your younger self? Save more. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, <laughs> the advice I give myself is to be patient. Um, and trust that when you're doing high quality work, that there's, you're going to be recognized for it. You're going to be able, they're going to find a role for you within the organization. I probably left a few too many times when I just got dissatisfied. Uh, so if I had to do anything back, I'd probably, you know, don't be so quick to take offense and leave, just sort of work it out and, uh, you know, be patient as a manager, you know, be, yeah. these are people that you have working for you and, um, you can you can cause them uh, you know great deal of happiness or you can cause them a great deal of pain and suffering and you don't want to do that and uh, I, I've not always uh, you know taken that advice to heart so I, I you know as I get older and uh, more sensible and get some wisdom of my years I think just to be a more gentle a kinder gentler uh, not not to be as brutally frank as I I tend to be <laughs> that's like a that's a good nickname. Like really, Frank. Frank. Yeah. Well, yeah. That, that was my. I, I was able to use that nickname when I was a boxer in my twenties, and then it also was when I was a food critic uh, later in my life. So, wait, wait. oh, critic. wow. All right, do you do you still? You know, are, do you still do food crit critic on the side? Or uh, well, I, I did it for about three years when I was up in New Hampshire, and just uh, enjoyed it a lot. And I wrote under the the, the nom de plume, uh, brutally frank. So. That. that was it was fun I, it was i think you should resurface it just i mean you, like, you can yeah. do it anywhere now to start a blog or or <laughs> oh, and i got to meet you know i was in a small city and i got to meet all the chefs and uh you know i always had a table when i when i when i came and okay. there were there were some nice elements to it that any, sounds like a dream <laughs> any inside recommendations of, of yeah. somewhere to eat in new hampshire uh well <laughs> uh, well you're you're in philadelphia are you yeah yeah well, I, I love, uh, what is his name? Um, 
Give me, well, this is the wrong time to blank out. Uh, there's, <laughs> there's a, it's only being recorded. It's okay. The red rooster. <laughs> um, no, I, I there's uh, it's a great place, and I just can't think of it. There's a I just can't think of it, so oh, I, I won't sorry. bore your audience with. Uh, <laughs> Well, when you I, think I, of it later, you can tell us and then, you know, maybe we can like pa pass it along. Somehow. Okay, uh, I'll <laughs> but, do that. I mean, if not, we're definitely going to we're definitely take the advice. So. Okay, well, I, I will be sh sure to send it over to you it's on the tip of my tongue. But one, one of the things I find is that one of the more interesting things about this podcast is finding about people's like side passions. So in one sentence, you told us that you were a boxer and a food critic. Yeah. <laughs> I am. That's that's awesome. Do you still box? I, I don't. I have a I have a heavy bag hanging from my uh, house. And so I, I can go down there and hit that anytime. Uh, but I boxed up until I was uh, in my 30s, uh, you know, as, a, as for fun. And then I just decided, I think at some point I just, um, you know, take it enough blows to the head. Yeah. You know, <laughs> so the heavy bag's going to have to do it for now. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, Frank, you've been a pleasure. I appreciate you taking the time to sit and, and talk with Lindsay and I today. I truly appreciate it. Well, thank you very much, ladies. I very much appreciate it. Hope you have a wonderful weekend. And uh, just in case I didn't say it at the beginning, uh, nothing I say can be should be construed as uh, being having been set on behalf of or of my employer, Tory Insurance like what you hear please like and subscribe to the defense never rest at apple Podcasts, and you can also find us at youtube at tdnr podcast